hello and welcome to episode 11 of the 1099 for the week of September 14th. It is a dreary, actually getting kind of chillier outside in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm excited about that because it's been like 100 and rainy for the past month or two months. Uh, Today I'm joined by a good friend of mine who is the creative director at Tan Gentleman, and he was also the lead designer and creative lead for Spec Ops The Line, which a lot of you I'm sure have played. Uh, It is Corey Davis. Corey, how are you doing today? I'm doing real good. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. I've definitely wanted you on here for a while. Uh, we've recently had um, a developer on here. We had Greg Kasavin, uh, which you know him well, of Supergiant Games. And uh, I really want to talk to you mainly, one of the main reasons was you have more recently done the transition from doing AAA work to indie work. You yeah. uh, have had a lot of experience at a lot of major studios with a lot of big name games. Um, just to kind of go down the list, I mean, lead designer at Spark Unlimited, lead designer creative lead at Jaeger. You had a senior lead level designer at Monolith. You were at TimeGate Studios. You were at Voodoo Fusion Studios. Uh, just c- to kind of give the audience an idea of what you've worked on, can you mention yeah. some of the games that you know your name was in the credits? Sure. Well, yeah, you're going way back there. That's awesome. <laughs> That's back some memories. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like I, probably the first thing that I was actually credited for was, uh, well, besides my own indie mod projects, um, was fear extraction point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's actually a project that I still look back on a lot today. I love that, that game. Um, it was an expansion pack for the first fear game that came out very pretty quickly after fear did. Um, and so we had a chance to sort of play around with the toolbox that was, there from the, the level designers of fear and uh, i think we made some pretty interesting stuff and the story went in 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 good ways but it was it was sort of my first try at, at that sort of thing and then i uh, moved on to condemn 2 um from there i uh you know on condemn 2 I, I ended up working on a lot of different aspects of game design and level design um from there i moved on to um fear 2 and so uh, I had a chance to work on the Fear franchise again, which was a, a great experience. Um, Fear 2 was a little bit more action-focused, but still had a lot of that soul of the original game. Yeah. That I um, and, then, uh, and then from there, I just had the chance basically to move on to, to Jaeger, where I worked on Spec Ops The Line. Um, and that was a great experience. I was there for, for a number of years working on that. Um, yeah, and I always look back on that as probably like the best experience I've ever had in my life in terms of, you know, working on something creatively. Mm. It was, it was, uh, it was life changing. So, so that was, that was amazing. And then from there, I I ended up heading back uh, to the U S I was looking for some new friends to work with. I found, uh, Toby guard and Rich Smith and John Garcia Shelton actually, who were working at spark at the time. Um, we finished a project there called Yaiba Ninja Gaiden Z, which was a fun sort of spin-off for me to work on something that was <clears throat> a lot different than what I ever had before. Yeah. Um, and then from there, basically, we decided it was time for us to move on and do our own thing and and uh, focus back on narrative, uh, on the sort of dark storytelling that, that we're really into. So so that's what I'm doing now. Um, what was your first actual role in? in game design you did you mentioned like modding stuff you had done were you doing kind of experimental smaller projects before you actually worked at a studio yeah so um you know even since i was a kid i was building uh, i was building shooter levels i was a big shooter player um even like doom 2 and quake and uh you probably know all the games in that category but, yeah um, 
but basically I was a fanatic like a lot of people were back then. And so I was trying to learn how to, how to use all the tools that were coming out. Um, but I got more serious about it uh, around the Half-Life era and uh, worked on a, uh, actually it was the start of the one that's probably the most well-known is the start of the uh, source engine, like the very, very start of that. We, we did a mod called dodgeball source. That was a competitive sort of arcade based dodgeball game. And it had all sorts of crazy stuff in it where like flaming dodgeballs and slime balls, uh, you know, stuff that we were just trying to push the boundaries of how much fun you could have with like a really simple competitive physics based game. And, you know, the half-life source engine, uh, the Half-Life 2 engine actually had, you know, networkable multiplayer physics. And so this was like a brand new playground for us. So we had, we had a lot of fun and like actually got a lot of people playing it. Have you played a disco dodgeball, which came out pretty recently on steam? Have you seen that game? Um, no, I don't think I've seen it. See, you totally should, because it sounds like you made disco dodgeball before disco dodgeball came out because there's (laughs) a, it really was gaining traction for a bit. It is, I reviewed it for GameSpot. Um, it is a game, it's like a multiplayer arena where it is like a disco floor and you are throwing flaming dodgeballs at each other. Uh, and it's like a yeah, deathmatch, objective-based thing. So you might have made that. <laughs> yeah, we had like perks you could get when you got experience points, you know, like it was sort of doing what Call of Duty ended up doing with their multiplayer. And so you could upgrade and purchase different balls and stuff like that as you were playing. Um, and it got really competitive because it was, you know, the physics actually were very predictable. And so you, you had people on there that, you know, I'd play them. They lived, you know, across the world from me, but they were just amazing at the game. And that was just as a game designer, just an amazing experience to, to see people take something and, and master it that you had the chance to work on. Yeah, I, I definitely need to send you this video now of this game after this podcast because it, <laughs> it might be very similar. Uh so, yeah, you had this early experience. You went to all these different studios. But when was the first time you actually felt like, you know, I've made it. I've done it. Because for me, you know, I was writing for years and years and doing stuff that I was proud of at the time. But it wasn't until um, my first, like, cover story on IGN where you have this moment where you're like, oh, I did it. Like, this thing I've been trying to do for so long, of course, there's so much more work to do. There's so much more I want to accomplish. But I'm finally taking that big step to being I can call myself a games writer or a games journalist when was the first time you kind of had to like sit back and be like man I'm I'm a developer like I did it you know I, I probably still struggle with feelings of like you know am I good enough every day I think I will for the rest of my life I don't know if I don't know if I'm ever gonna say you know I'm I've made it because to me this is like it's a journey and I'm learning so much every time I think a few times I fooled myself into thinking I'd made it <laughs> I've been there. But then basically, I saw there was another mountain to climb. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. But like, I remember when I wasn't in the industry, I remember the feeling of looking at game developers and just being like, "Holy shit, you guys are the ones making this magic stuff that I love so much." Yeah. And so, um, so I remember actually my first interview <clears throat> was at TimeGate Studios uh, in Houston, Texas, of all places, and. Um, and I remember asking that question to the lead designer there saying, you know, what's it, what's it actually feel like to like be a game developer? Because I've been doing this mod stuff and making levels for, for me and for my friends that I'm proud of for a long time. But like, to me, it seems like there's something else going on when you, when you can actually do that full time and that becomes your career. That's just, that was my goal. And, uh, and I think he was even taken back a little bit by the question. It's like when someone asks you that, that's when you really, think about it (laughs) yeah no i I think that's a big part of it is like not really knowing until 
someone mentions it to you. But I mean, you mentioned that you you still you still struggle with it. You still feel like there's so much yeah. more you have to do. But once again, you were this creative force behind Spec Ops: The Line, which a lot of people still talk about that game today. There's correct me if I'm wrong. Is there someone who I thought wrote a book kind of critiquing that game and looking more in depth about it? There's Brendan Keogh wrote a wrote a, a really interesting book about that yeah actually. and it's that has to be crazy to look back on that and see that and so i yeah. really want to dig into that game and that development but just explain was a lot of that story and the way that game was built was that from mostly your design was it a giant team effort i, I, just, I guess i want to know how yeah. big of a role you had in making that game you know when i look back at it now it's this was years ago and so like I can I can see the influence of a lot of different people on everything we did, and, mm-hmm. um, and you know I was the one at the helm for four and a half years of the project and shipped the game there, and it was definitely the game that I wanted to ship um, in many ways. Uh, but at the same time, I I came to an understanding of what I wanted to do in large part because of the great people that were around me. And those people started at the publisher at 2K. So like even before I I had been to Jaeger, I spoke with 2K about the project. Mm. <clears throat> and there was just a bunch of dedicated people at 2K that were willing to try something new um, and to take a risk to basically um, tell a, a dark emotional narrative journey um, rather than do what a lot of the sort of profitable games that were coming out at the time were doing. And so I think that was actually a lot of uh, individuals at 2K that were basically open to that sort of thing when, when a lot of other publishers wouldn't have been. And then they, they, they shepherded along basically the formation of the team and helped find me. And, um, and from there, they were, there were, there were, don't get me wrong, there was times where we were absolutely up in arms and unhappy with each other we were all very invested in the project but you know they didn't give up on us and um at the start especially they made this a possibility and you mentioned the four and a half year development uh and this this idea this creative vision at the start that you wanted to make something different than all the games out there that were profitable and i think 2k has a good track record of encouraging their studios or studios they're working with to kind of think outside the box and they're willing to put money down on a gamble. But what's always been interesting to me about Spec Ops The Line, um, and this might have been something you you even got frustrated with too, I would assume, is I think a lot of the um, media beforehand and the coverage had kind of painted it as a mostly standard third-person shooter. Like, oh, here's another game that's kind of following in the lead of a Gears of War and using kind of this Call of Duty wrapping in terms of you yeah. know, modern military shooter. But Spec Ops The Line, it's so much more than that. And I remember that was one of the first games I reviewed at a new site I was at. And I, I got it in the mail and I started playing it. And I, I couldn't help it. I had bought into the, the media coverage of it. And I started to play it. And I'm like, oh, this is so different than anything that I've played. And it just starts unfolding with all these interesting story beats and there's this you know really dark tone at certain points and you can hear the characters like uh, the things they're saying as they're shouting out as they're going it's it's getting more desperate it's getting more gravelly and it's it was this natural it you know there's there's absolutely like with every game there's issues with it but i walked away from that game saying like what the hell did i just play compared to what i thought i was about to play did it 
frustrate you initially when you were reading these previews and maybe even some reviews that didn't fully grasp what was going on? Did it ever frustrate you to hear people say like, oh, it's it's just another military shooter? I, I just always assume that those people were probably looking for, you know, a, a game like the other ones that were out and yeah. you know, so we're going to disappoint some people. Um, either that or they didn't play it long enough. That was probably the thing that frustrated me the most was uh, there was a number of reviews that didn't make it past the first 45 minutes of the game. I could tell by what they were writing. And so that was a tough lesson for me because you have to balance the sort of, you know, the pacing of the descent into the good stuff that i love the madness and the and the sort of horror that that was there we paced that slowly at the start of the game and some people didn't accept sort of the investment that they would have to make in order to sort of get into the characters and the environment and um and the start of the story there in order to see it start to devolve because once it started to devolve was to me when it really got interesting but there needed to be a strong setup at the start and um so i'm i'm just constantly sort of debating that but at the same time you know like looking back on it now it was a strange project there was going to be some people that it just confused and that's the way it is (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i mean it's there has to be a big debate between you know you and the team and everyone involved because like you said, it is it's a it's a slow descent into madness. It it, it yeah. takes a bit to show its hand. Uh, it does appear to be a standard military shooter at the start, and it, it controls well. But you know, people from the outside can come in and be like, "Oh, well, there there are games that do this better." But as you dig in, once again, you start to see the layers. You start to see that this is different, and like that ending. There's so um so there's so many things in that game that are just so interesting to me. Um, we had a uh a listener on Twitter named Meta Haggis. I don't know if that's his real name. If so, well, <laughs> then he wanted to know from you: was this focus on storytelling a happy accident, or was it intended from the start? And from what you're saying, it was intended from the start to kind of be a story focused game. But once again, you mentioned four and a half years. Was it was it a four and a half year total development cycle? Was it even longer? I, I'd say it was about four and a half years. I mean, the, the thing is, is um, what's strange is 2K had been attempting to reboot the Spec Ops thing since like 98, mm. 99, something like that. Um, they were trying to figure out what to do with the franchise since it had been sitting. Um, and you can actually even go back and find some strange uh, hints of uh, news re- posts. Uh, like press releases that came out announcing other Spec Ops games that went into development and yeah. canceled. Yeah, there there was like one that the Queens of the Stone Age were announced to do the soundtrack for and stuff like that. There was so so <laughs> there was people at 2K that wanted to do something with it and sort of saw it as an opportunity but hadn't found a place for it yet. Um, now, in terms of uh, the focus on narrative, I remember the first meeting I had with 2K. They were talking about narrative, and that was probably the reason why I left Monolith was because like I had taken a stab at pushing the, the sort of shooter uh, horror thing a couple of times in a narrative direction and had had some amount of success, but not where I wanted to be. And this seemed like 2K was really willing to, 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 put, to go all in on it. Um, and they were like not afraid of the darkness that we were going to explore. And so that like that very first meeting I had with them, I was really impressed about the the whole concept. Now it was at the time it was it was a different thing that we were talking about, but the the focus on narrative was already there. Yeah, and you mentioned a different thing you were talking about over four and a half years. I'm assuming this changed a lot, and I feel like there were multiple times 
where we thought it was coming out soon and then suddenly it's kind of just completely erased from the release calendar and it's like wait is this coming out is this coming out two years later uh how many i mean you've worked on so many different games was this the game that changed the most over the course of development of anything you've worked on um no i mean i I think What's strange is that, like, when I look back at Walker and Lugo and Adams and Dubai, that was established very, very early. Like, our, our initial prototype levels had, you know, sand avalanches and uh, had moral decisions in them. So, so that was sort of the, the, the skeleton of it came together pretty fast. But the thing that changed was the, the exact journey that the characters went on. We, we tried out a lot of different things. And we tried out a focus on a number of different things and we had to reel it in and and figure out what was the the sort of main focus that we were going for, which became at some point I, I can remember there was a shift where we, we stopped, you know, talking so much about the mechanics and things like that. And we, we all dove into the dark journey that the characters were going on. And that's when all those things like the evolution of the voice and the visuals of the characters started yeah. to become our focus and the nuance of the environmental storytelling and the hallucinations that happen that, you know, that happen off in a corner that you may not even notice if you don't go and look around after you've made one of these moral decisions. Um, We just basically figured out that we had found a strong tone and now we could, we could focus on this journey that these, that these characters were taking and, and basically fix the bugs with the rest of it, but put all of our money on that. I would say we, we probably got distracted a couple of times because there were games that came out along the way when you're in development. Sometimes you'll, you'll develop something and then a game comes out that's doing the exact same thing. Hmm. And, you're not, and you're not planning to come out yet for a while. So you're looking at that going, and, and you know this is a decision you have to make as a developer. Do I allow myself to be influenced by games that are coming out while I'm developing my game? Um, how much of that influence am I willing to take or how much am I willing to stand on my own feet and say, I made the right decision and we're going to stick with it. And so uh, the publisher gets involved with that too. They say, oh, we played this other game that does cover tagging better than you do. So what's up with that? And so mm-hmm. then you end up diving into that. And I think you can get distracted. Because um, really what you ought to be focusing on are the things that make your game unique. Um, if, we would have made, if we would have polished our shooting mechanics to be you know, the best of that year that came out, we wouldn't be talking about the game right now. No, yeah, you're probably right. It's it must be weird just you know having all of those things come out with such a long development cycle and realizing like oh should we polish this should we change that yeah. uh, have we decided should we go in this direction instead of that direction uh, yeah. look, looking back and once you know hindsight's twenty twenty but do you have any regrets on that project do you ever look back and say like man I wish we would have done X or I wish we would have done Y you know it, I, I I think the the one thing that I regret is that I probably was a little young and not quite strong enough to get as much of the the hallucination and darkness into the game as I would have liked hmm. when i when I look back, it's there um, and it's strong and and I love it, but honestly, I'd love to take another swing at it. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. <laughs> and so um so it's no, I don't have any regrets. I think that it we actually ended up better than we had any right to um, with the fact that many of us hadn't worked on anything like this before. And it was a very strange project that we had a hard time even explaining to yeah. people what it was. <laughs> no, it's, I think that's a good way to put it too. Like you look at something and it's like, man, this is better than it had any right to. Like looking at the circumstances, <laughs> looking at the, the different tools we were giving, 
the fact that we made this is kind of <laughs> amazing. And you had mentioned that 2K was looking to reboot Spec Ops, as a lot of publishers do. They see their older properties and they say, yeah. you know, why do a new IP when we can take this established franchise and move forward with it? Was there ever any discussion? I don't know if you can talk about this. If you can't, say no comment. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> was there discussion afterward about moving on and doing a sequel to the line? Uh, there, there actually has been a couple of press releases that Jaegers come out with about that because they've been questioned a lot. Like, what's what's crazy about the whole thing is that you know we weren't in a favorable position with the press um, or with people knowing about Jaeger or us at all when the game came out. Mm. Um, and what you don't realize a lot of times is that when a game comes out, the game's already been on the, basically shelved for the developers for a couple of months. And so they're sitting around wondering if it's going to be successful or not. And, uh, and a lot of times they leave. And so when, uh, when things start to look really good, um, people are, a lot of them are gone. Your game did well. And you start to think about a sequel three months after the game came out. It's another team developing that game. Usually. Totally. There were definitely discussions about that. Um, Jaeger, they, they announced in the press basically that, they wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, I was involved with pitching Dead Island 2 at okay. the time. Uh, and, um, and basically, uh, the talks about sequel stuff were sort of hinged on, let's see how everything does. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not really going to work unless you know they were to rehire someone and bring them back there who had the vision and, and could kick it off again. Do you want to see a Spec Ops the line too, or do you feel that that was kind of a singular experience that we should leave as is? I'd love to see a, uh, a release on, on the modern consoles, mm-hmm. but I'm not necessarily looking for a Spec Ops the line too or anything like that. I, I like the direction we went in and I would love to do something else that's similar. Okay, gotcha. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, we've we've talked before at you know E three over different phone calls about uh, the conditions and kind of situation that you had at Jaeger in Berlin. Can you kind of dig into that? What it was like working in that environment? That was amazing. From my first interview there, Berlin is just a really really cool place. It's just strange. It's full of history. Um, every day on my way to work, basically. I would pass by street signs and buildings that had bullet holes in them that had been preserved. And you'd pass by golden cobblestones that represented people that were taken away to concentration camps. And you'd see their, their homes were just missing because they'd been bombed, things like that. Um, It was, and then, and then at the same time, you've got all these people there that, that sort of came up out of the darkness of the history of this place that are unwilling to allow it to, to get them down. And so you just have this creativity just exploding out of Berlin. Um, the music that's there, the, the art that's there, the game development that's there now. It's, mm. I think Berlin is just the, one, of the, one of the most interesting places I've ever been. And it's, it feels like a small town when you're there. So you, like, you feel everyone sort of ends up at the same places. Um, all the people that had come to, to, to Jaeger from like – different nationalities different countries we're all sort of hanging out together we, we just had a had a really strong family environment together um, a lot of us had you know life experiences together where we got married or had kids or um, or you know had a had a change in career but we all stuck together 
um, people that left Jaeger and things like that. So I, I, I think there's still a really strong family there at, at Jaeger that'll, that'll always be there. And, um, and it's, it really was influenced by the, the, the location that it was at. You know, one day we had a, a, a bomb scare because there was actually a bomb found. They were doing a little bit of construction on the river right next to the studio, about like 20, 20 feet from the studio. They found an unexploded uh, British bomb from World War II. Wow. And so basically we, we all evacuated and ended up hanging out at a, at a pub the rest of the afternoon, having a great time and like talking about the game. So th- these types of experiences more than ever in game development for me, they seem to have an opportunity there to like infuse into our work. And, um, and we were all sort of experiencing the political atmosphere of the time as well from the Berlin perspective, which is a little bit different. It's Berlin's a little, it's just such a mix of different types of people. It's very sort of punk rock. Um, and so everyone's talking about politics. Everyone's arguing about these things. And so on a daily basis, when we were, when we're talking about, you know, how we're going to represent war crimes and how, what type of moral decisions these characters are going to encounter, how authentic and realistic we're going to be with these things. Um, it was a very, very meaningful discussion mm-hmm. in large part because of this family that was there that, that really cared about these things. And, and that was influenced because of Berlin. Yeah, and even you just describing that right there reminds me of something that I've always admired about you, which is your enthusiasm for any situation, anything you're working on. I mean, in a lot of some people could go to Berlin and see that environment, in which you know the bullet holes and buildings and uh, stuff like that, and kind of take a a down view of it. But you're you're using that as a creative driver, like that's your engine for uh, making something like Spec Ops. And if you think about it, when you talk about that environment, a lot of that comes through just in terms of tone with the game you're making. Um, I've always felt in that way, you're super genuine and something that, uh, I would love to talk to you about and something, you know, I'm, I'm mostly a critic these days. I I still do features. I still do news stories, but, uh, you know, for the last year, I've pretty much exclusively been doing a whole bunch of reviews for GameSpot. Um, this is something I ask Greg Kasab, and it's something I want to talk to you about, and it's how you respond and take criticism from uh, game reviewers. And let me use this example. So when I talked to you at E3 2013, we were talking about Yaiba Ninja Gaiden Z, and you, know, you, had, you had a giant smile on your face. You're extremely enthusiastic about the game. Um, so when the critical response came out, you know, it, it, for the most part, veered more toward the negative side. For, for a project like that, can you sit back and take that criticism constructively do you initially have the gut reaction of they don't get it uh like you think they might have missed the point what's kind of the process of working on something you're passionate about and maybe getting a critical response you either didn't expect or you don't agree with it never really seems to to shock me or get me down i i for some reason sort of expects like i'm not trying to do really mainstream stuff a lot Mm. and so i expect some people to be unhappy with it but you know at the same time i do appreciate the feedback i'm getting like i i, I really do when i yeah. when i read a review and i see something in there that i could have done better i'm trying to figure out how to do that um even if the reviewer comes at it from a perspective that i can tell is is clouded because of some experience or some misunderstanding about what we were trying to do um there's still a lot of times good feedback in there it's the same it's the same exact thing with focus testing yeah um, a lot of the focus tests 
you, you'd be surprised. A lot of the focus test feedback I get looks a lot like a review. The, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for this feedback constantly. Um, I also know, you know, when I hear this feedback, I know why things turned out the way they did. And so I don't have to sit there and go, oh, I, I wonder why this happened the way that it did. Or um, I wonder if I'm responsible or not. I know if I'm responsible or not. Yeah. <laughs> or, if I, or if I had a chance to change it or not. Um, and then sometimes I, I may just disagree because I was trying to do something that's, that I feel, you know, for me was, was fulfilling and, and it worked and maybe it didn't work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I do care. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And you mentioned responsibility and for a project where, you know, you're not the main mind behind a game like Yaiba, there's a lot of people working on it. Is, is that easier to swallow when a game gets like a more negative reception? Because, you know, like once again, like I was in charge of this specific aspect and like you said you understand i would assume that when a review comes out there's not a lot of surprises you don't read a review and say like what why would they think that like most of the time you're like yeah we know this certain aspect is the best part or this is an issue is that is that kind of something you do you know what's gonna happen you're usually not surprised by what they say but you usually are surprised by the score like the, the scores are really strange because a lot of times I'll read a review for something that seems super negative and then the score is great. <laughs> yeah. um, or I'll, I'll read a review that seems super po- – this is what happens to my games. Someone will say, this was awesome. I love this game so much. Better than most of the things that came out like it. Big surprise. And then they'll give me a seven. Yep. No, I, I totally get – yeah, it's – and, you know, this is – you know, you're talking to someone who does, like, rate a lot of things. So I absolutely hear you. And it's – you well, have that's to okay. – That's okay. I, I, I realize as well that probably the thing that annoys me the most when I when I read a review is when someone is going into the value of money versus the game. Yes. Because most of the time they don't they don't know how much the game costs to make. They don't know what went into deciding what the price was. And usually the developer and, and in fact I can't remember a time when a developer had control over the price. Mm-hmm. And so when when I and I understand feeling ripped off for something, but when you love something, when you when you write a positive review about it and then kick it down twenty points um, because it was short, the fact to me that you loved it meant that you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree, and it's value is such a weird thing to judge in a review. I mean, once again, everyone reviews games differently, and I think that's coming out yeah. more and more. We're seeing a lot more in my mind diverse reviews from very diverse voices uh, which is interesting uh, because people score things differently a lot of people wouldn't give journey a perfect score because well it, said, well, it took an hour and a half it's like yeah. okay but would that game have been better if it was twice as long because i don't think so because some <laughs> games work better in a shorter window some things uh i, I remember playing um castlevania lords of shadow which is a weird example but it's like a 30-hour game, 25-hour game, that if I, if that was an eight-hour game, it would be so much better. It, there's just yeah. this chunk in the middle that's like, oh, I feel like someone told you this had to be this certain number of hours in order to guarantee, quote-unquote, best value. But this yeah. is not good. This is filler. I want a – especially the older I get, the more responsibility you get, um, the more you'd rather have a tight, wonderful four- to six-hour game than yeah. a 10 to 15 hour game that your moments where you're like, oh, I just want this part to be over with. And then having been on the developer side of this, you have no idea like the anguish that a developer will go through over this. I mean, I've, I've seen projects where not ones that I've worked on, but um, 
ones that definitely shipped that basically took a level from earlier in the game, flipped it so you played in reverse again and changed the lighting. And yep. that's just add, you know, 40 minutes to the game. And that was a requirement from the publisher. And that was a requirement from the publisher because the publisher has an eye out to what's going on with the sales of the games having to do with the reviews. Oh. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that stuff that's just crazy to me because I recently reviewed um, Devil May Cry 4 and they have this like definitive special edition that came out on PS4 and Xbox One and PC. And it just reminded me of that game that had, you know, the entire first half you're playing Nero and then you pretty much backtrack through the entire game yeah. as Dante. And the, the entire I'm playing this and I'm like, I was just here. I was just here. Why are you doing this again? And I, you understand maybe it's a link thing so that people feel like they're getting their money's worth. But once again, I think more and more that shouldn't be the deciding factor. You shouldn't have to look at a game and be like, well, this is going to take me a lot of time, so it's worth my money. First off, you should never. a reviewer should never assume something is worth someone's time. You have no idea what that person's life is. You, don't, <laughs> you shouldn't be judging that. Um, and second, what's worth my time is memorable experiences. I'm very willing to pay the same price for a shorter game if it is a better, more interesting experience, like a Gone Home like a yeah. journey, like something that can put a lot into a short span. If, if I, I love that about games. I love short games. So, yeah. no. Well, I, talking about potency, you know, the great games come out of the, the polish phase basically on an already solid foundation. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to establish a solid foundation with enough time to polish it, basically the amount of content you have to polish has to do everything with how potent you can make that polish phase. Absolutely. So, um, so man, it, it can hurt a lot to cut out something or you may have to, you know, have a different way to look at, at certain aspects of the, of the journey your characters are going on. Uh, if, if that journey or the pieces of that are going to take away your focus from the really important parts, hope that we can keep moving towards, you know, games establishing a sort of a, a qualitative, um, feel with without needing length to do it. I think we're breaking down barriers. I really do think we're getting there. Like, I mean, once again, earlier when the Xbox 360 and PS3 first came out, and the you know downloadable services were there, like PSN and Xbox Live, there was definitely oh, there's always this fight about value. What's is this worth my money? And more and more with Steam and with just more and more indie games coming out of varying length, you know, something like a Limbo that like shut up if you think that's not worth your money or your time like it's a great game and it's short like yeah. i don't want to hear your argument against that if you don't like the game that's fine but it's nothing to do with its length so i think we're getting closer and closer to just not being concerned with how long a game is if a game is memorable that's what's uh really really important and and what that does is it allows smaller teams to you know smaller talented teams to really focus and make something that feels handmade because they can make something that's small enough that they can afford to put all that love into it that people are going to enjoy when it ships. Totally. And you just set up a great transition for me. Talking about <laughs> uh, handmade games and uh, games that feel like a few people's creative vision. I mean, you, you've you moved on, as we talked about, from working at bigger studios to starting Tan Gentleman with uh, a lot of your friends that were working on Yaiba and people who have worked on Tomb Raider and Call of Duty uh, how has that transition been so far? You had mentioned before that with Yaiba, you knew like if someone, you worked on a very specific part of it, so you knew like this part wasn't 
you did your job. You did your job. You don't have to worry about the critical response. Now you're this smaller group where you're all probably have kind of your hands in a little bit of everything. Is Has that been thrilling? Has that been scary? Were, were you ever worried about going out in this small group and breaking away from AAA? Just how has that whole experience been? With Yaiba, like I hope I didn't give the impression that I don't I don't care about the critical response because I do. Like I no. I, I really do like every one of my games. I wish we could have made even better, and um, and some of them could have been a lot better, um, and I could have done better. Uh, but you know, I, I I basically that was a project that was driven not just from within our house. Yeah. And so so that's the difference. That's, okay. That, that, that's happening now. Is um, is that when I look across the table, I'm looking at all the people that are making the decisions on on the project, um, and and because of that, we can do some really really different types of things. Um, we can make tough decisions and we can make strong decisions, and so so that's that's a great experience. It's really what I had, what I felt like I had when I first started in the industry before I got into AAA. Um, working with people that I just people that I cared about and who I respected um, and who we all chose to work together not just because it was our job but because we each know that one of us it's like you know you're, you're, you're part of a band one of us the drummer one of us the guitarist one of us is the bass player mm. um, one of us the singer um, and that's the type of game development experience that I found the most joy in even at bigger studios sometimes you end up in a situation where you can have that um, but basically confining or stripping down everything that you want to do to the people that are actually doing it and talking to you about it, uh, to me, makes a different type of, different type of game. Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's been a great experience. It was, really, it was really scary at first. It's definitely not an easy thing to do. Um, it's also not easy to basically you know, stop working and then have opportunities show up that seem like maybe you should pursue them and then say, Nope, I'm, I'm sure that I'm doing something else this time, doing my own thing. Yeah. Um, and I have confidence in the small group of guys that that's with me. Um, so, so that there was, there was six months of, of, uh, stress and a lot of anxiety and there's still, there's still that Mm -hmm. from time to time. Um, but, the just like I have tons of joy every day, basically when I go in and I can see the progress that the guys are making and we can talk about it and we can try and push elements further. And there's nothing trying to stop us from doing the, the most amazing version of what we want to do. Um, that's a great, great feeling. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned joy. So, uh, we, I was the, you know, I was the one who ended up uh, talking to you when you had first, announced that you were doing this it ended up going on GameSpot as a news feature and I remember talking to you on the phone to get quotes and talking to different people on your team and that was the most evident thing for me is just seeing it really felt like even though you were of course scared and there's no reason not to be you were still sure this is what you wanted to do you were still very confident in this is the right group of guys um, I'm ready to kind of break away from this uh triple a structure and go on this indie life raft and try this on our own where we can make a more uh, maybe a more personal game if that makes sense a, a game that feels like you said more handcrafted is that kind of what you found that and I, I think we see a lot more games now um 
that launched. Let, let me use Centris, for example, uh, where it's Samantha Kalman who made that, and it feels very personal and like it is a some something out of one person's head. Has it? Have you kind of over the course of development of your game? felt that way where you could say like man this really feels like us this feels like our game yeah yeah definitely um i think that i think spec ops felt like us to be honest um it wasn't easy for it to feel that way with a big team but but i felt i still feel like when i play the game i I hear the whole team in those voices Hmm. um but you know it was it was a different type of struggle to do that and we also had to think a lot more about the large budget that we had on our shoulders for that number of developers over that amount of time and the amount that the game was going to sell in order to make back enough to to be a successful project in the eyes of all those people who put money into it yeah um and so you know when you've got upwards of you know 80 90 100 110 120 people um things get very very stressful and they also get expensive yeah absolutely (laughs) so so you have to think about how do how do we make the decisions not just to make the game that we want to make but also so that you know there's justification for four and a half years of bearded guys running around making weird (laughs) stuff (laughs) that was actually the first way i discovered who you were is i think we had done some sort of feature together you had given me quotes and i was walking around with a, a co-worker with this camera and I saw you in the distance and I'm like, I've never met you in person, but that beard looks so familiar that I think that's Corey. And immediately I was like, oh, yeah, that's totally you. So that's the one thing I'll remember about E3 is like, bearded guy, that's Corey. Let's go talk to him. Uh, so, of course, I can't ask you too much about uh, the new game you're making because you know, there's a lot that you have to kind of keep behind closed doors. But what can you say about it? Because at the time you had a title and um, just some art for the feature that we had worked together on. Uh, what, at this point, are you willing to kind of uh, reveal about your game? Um, well, there's you know, there's going to be a big reveal coming up, so I don't want to spoil mm-hmm. everything for you guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, we did make like a small announcement uh, about the game, which, which we're calling Daedalus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can tell you it's... It's, I hope, what you'd expect me to make after the other things that I've worked on, but, um, but also with this new team of um, I, what I would say is the you know, most interesting group of fellows I've ever worked with. Um, and you know, I think we're, we're basically unleashed at this point to do the thing that we really want to do, and, yeah. um, and it's a dark narrative journey. And that's what we're doing. And I hope I, I just can't wait to, to tell you more about it. <laughs> I mean, there is a, there is an image that was released. You mentioned if you go to tangentleman.com and scroll past all the pictures of bearded people barbecuing, um, you will see the image of the game there. That was an early concept image that, that Rich Smith, our art director put together. Um, but no, I'm just, I'm really excited about it. Um, it's the thing that I'm basically, you know, living and dying for right now uh and i know my my other tan gentlemen are as well and so we're just really excited the things have been coming together really well we've gone through a number of different phases at this point that i can't tell you much about yeah (laughs) but um but yeah we're really excited about it and we're loving development of the game and can't wait to to make a big announcement 
No, totally. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so kind of maybe even a deeper question, a, a long reaching question here. Uh, you've, you've worked at so many different studios, you've made a lot of different games and you're having this big announcement, your first indie project. Uh, when you kind of look toward the future, w- what are your goals as a developer? What, like you said, it's always a process. And even when you look at yourself now, you're like, you you have questions like, have I made it? Am I, you, you, there's always those moments where you look back and you're like, oh, I was always looking after these people. Am I close to their level now? Am I, am, am I where I want to be? What are kind of the goals for you moving forward as an indie developer? Um, well, like for me personally, basically I've been on a journey the last sort of, you know, since, since like about halfway through Spec Ops, I started really getting back into music. It was something that I played guitar all growing up and everything like that. And mm-hmm. um, had, a, had a great opportunity to work with Andre- Andreas Wengel over there at Jaeger and, and the other designers like Sean Frizen and Barbara Bent, basically on, and, and Walt Williams and Richard Piercy as well, the writers, all of us focusing on music. Um, that was one of the things that to me took Spec Ops to another level. And, um, and being a guitar player, I had a chance to work with Elias Miral, the composer, quite a bit. And basically just had this overwhelming feeling that I needed to bring that harder. I needed to, to take that with me further. And so I, I started going heavy into music production, basically, with all my free time. Um, and now I'm, I'm doing audio for our game and music for our game. And it's something that basically allows me to have an even sort of more handcrafted approach to the pacing of the emotions the flow of that as the player gets into the experience because i have my hand on those on those uh speakers as well yeah and so, um so that's something that i really love and it's something that's music's always influenced me a lot and so i want to move i want to do more of that but at the same time i want to get better at i want to get better at writing i want to get better at um communicating with my team I want to I want to focus even further on what I think is our sort of unique identity um, to do to make experiences that people probably didn't consider possible before um, the sort of this latest generation when people have broken down a lot of those barriers that you're talking about. Yeah. So I want to keep breaking down those barriers. I want to make things that people you know maybe have a hard time defining, but that they really love. And I want to go further into that that dark journey that I think uh, a game has a unique experience to like draw you into. Totally. No, that's, I think that's a good goal. And that's super excited once again, just to hear more about all of this. Uh, It's been cool to kind of uh, in a small way, be a part of at least unveiling that to people. And I look forward to seeing more of that in the future. It's been great to have, you know, someone like you around as well to to actually (laughs) want to talk to me about it too so (laughs) (laughs) no i I appreciate it i I love talking about this stuff and once again you're one of the most passionate developers i know so every time i start talking to you i swear to god i think i start a new project immediately after every phone call i'm like (laughs) i need to go do something like i need to keep sharpening this i could do better at this stuff um and (laughs) speaking of keep sharpening skills and uh getting better at things uh during the end of these podcasts i always like to uh both you know give a tip myself and ask whoever I have on to give a tip just to kind of maybe inspire someone or encourage someone who uh, is in a rut or is just trying to figure out a way to get into this to just take one step that will help you out. And uh, just for, for this week, um, I think as a journalist, uh, we had mentioned earlier in this podcast that you never really know, like, have I made it? Am I 
quote unquote big time, wherever you want to look at. Um, and not thinking that you're good enough or big enough can kind of hold you back in certain ways. And one yeah. way that uh, you shouldn't be held back is uh, a lot of times, especially I know when I was coming up, before I was getting paid to do any of this, uh, I'd always worried about emailing developers or um, other writers that I kind of had looked up to. I had always, it's always hard to email them and reach out and ask for an interview or even just to connect. And it, it's this mental barrier of, oh, like you said, you're talking to like, these developers uh, when you had started and you're like, what's it like to be like that? Because it feels like they're yeah. this higher level. And yes, they have more experience than you, but never be afraid to reach out and try to talk to someone. Like, I mean, for you, I had played Spec Ops the Lion. That was such this cool game to me. And I decided to reach out to you because you were this creative force behind it and you were this interesting person. It's the same with Greg Kasavin. It's the same mm -hmm. with um, I've talked to Patrick Klepek, I've talked to, I've worked with Kevin Van Ord for years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so often if you're a newer journalist, you don't take that first step cause you're going to expect yeah. a no and you're going to get a lot of no's. Like in general, I, you get denied usually more often than you get the approval. But if you send out 10 emails and get two responses from people you really, uh, are interested in, you start talking to them, that's a win. And the worst you're going to get is a no or a no response. So if, especially for, for younger freelancers or writers, uh, if you ever just right now, like pause this podcast, go write an email to someone that you really want to talk to, whether it be a developer or another writer, and just try to start a conversation. Talk about setting up an interview, talking about work together, um, because the worst you can get is a no, and the best you can get is just this unlimited, like all these opportunities with someone that you respect. So. That's my tip of the week. Uh, Corey, I kind of sprung this on you earlier in the podcast, but is there anything that you have for uh, developers that you feel like is a good tip or good advice? Uh, I would say always be on the lookout for people and where they're at that are basically at the top of whatever you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so um, you'd be surprised if you look around, you talk to people, there's a lot of people that you would maybe assume have made it that are feeling a lot like you are. And they'd, they'd love to talk to you and they'd love to hang out with you. And so I would, I would basically, if you're a creative person, I would tell you to constantly try and surround yourself with people that you look up to creatively and who are in the same creative zone as you and try and always reach one step beyond what you think that you possibly could have um, from your sort of circle of friends and, and really try and refine that group and, and, and surround yourself with people that, that can, help you get to the next level. And I think anyone can do that. That's something that, um, that, you know, I, I try and go out to, for example, I try and go out to a lot of different, um, uh, music venues and things like that. And I'm not just there drinking or whatever. I'm also talking and making friends. And because of that, I've made contacts with people that have basically helped me to do a lot of things in my career that I never would have been able to do. And so there, there's just, there's amazing creative people all around you, whatever you're trying to do. If you look around and you go out and you get involved and you talk to people um, and you're not creepy, <laughs> and, uh, then you may just find the, the person that you're meant to do your next project with. And, um, and that's something that I think everybody should always be on the lookout for. Totally. And like you're a perfect example of that. If you wouldn't have met a lot of these people that you're working with now, like you wouldn't be at an indie studio making something you love and waking up and being really fucking excited about developing every day. So uh, about it. people will listen. Yeah. Some won't, but the right ones will. Totally. No, I think that's great advice. Uh, and it's really been wonderful to actually have like a long discussion with you again it has been a while we've kind of been emailing back and forth but uh once again always talking talking to you every single time makes me 
excited and motivated to do something. And I think you, you are a great person to have on here because what I really want to do is give people a starting point, give people motivation because like we talked about, I'm not at the top of any sort of mountain. I write for IGN and GameSpot and that's always great and these have been my goals. But um, when I was coming up, I struggled to find a resource to uh, kind of give me this 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 entryway into writing about games. And uh, I think you're a great person to talk to if people are wondering, how do I start making them? I mean, you started with mods, you went through AAA, you're now indie and you found a lot of success. So I... I really do hope you know people listen to this. I think it's a cool conversation about spec ops, but also just really great advice for people who want to get in development and maybe they don't know where to start. So, Thanks so much. No problem at all. Uh, so, Corey, where can people find you on Twitter and uh, maybe even where can they find the Tan Gentleman? If you want to follow my quick, crazy Twitter ramblings, I am Snakefist, but that's snake with a three where the E would go. S-N-A-K-3 fist at Twitter. And then um, the studio's name is Tangentleman. So you could go to tangentleman.com. That's not uh, transgender men or <laughs> um, transcendentalmanism or anything like that. Uh, tangentleman. <laughs> and not tangentialmen. <laughs> you need to get like all these domains. Yeah, Actually, you really should. Even got uh, brochures for tanning supplies as well. Oh man, that should be your side business. All right, <laughs> well, well, we'll talk about this one off the phone. We'll, this, I don't want anyone to steal this idea. Um, you might be lost if you go looking. We are ten gentlemen. <laughs> All right, great. Well, hopefully, we'll hear more from you guys soon. Once again, thank you so much, Corey, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. And look forward to uh, having you guys all come back for the next episode of the Ten Ninety Nine.